and welcome to the edition podcast. I am your host, Charlotte Henry. You probably have learned that by now, but I'm joined this week by a new guest. I'm very excited to have finally got him on. It's Adam Sherwin, who is the arts and media correspondent at the iPaper. Hi, Adam. How are you? Very good. Delighted to be here. No, I'm thrilled to have you. Tried to, glad we managed to make it work because you've been doing some great, great reporting. Well, for a long time, but your recent reporting on the BBC has been fantastic. And that's really what we want to dive into because we're going to sort of look ahead to what 2024 means for the BBC. Because I think it's going to be quite another difficult year for the institution and the outlet. Um, what's your take on that? Let's just go big picture first. What do you think we're looking at for 2024? Yes, every year seems to be a difficult year for the BBC, but I think 2024 certainly looks even more fraught, potentially. They've got a general election to navigate. There'll be lots of questions about BBC impartiality and its journalism. They they will come up again. They've got real pressure on the finances still. They're going to have to still try and make this sort of £400 million worth of savings by 2027. And we've already seen with the Newsnight cuts how that is beginning to show itself on screen um they're gonna have a new chair of the bbc will be in place uh over the next few weeks so that's going to be interesting to see if that's a strong figure and how that changes relations and they're going to have government pressure particularly on on everything from this journalism to the license fee all those sorts of things are going to come together within an organization that is still facing huge competition uh from rivals and creatively with inflation cost of drama going up and delivering on screen for the license fee payer who's uh, maybe a little bit more reluctant to keep paying the license i think there's another problem as well and i want to dive into all the points you make because they're all very well made but there seems to be a general issue as well that the bbc seems to have to spend an inordinate time talking about itself which yes. is not really useful is it <laughs> I think that it's inevitable, I suppose, when you are reliant on the government for how your funding is secured. So there's a constant battle to justify your existence. But at the same time, you become a lightning rod for every debate in, in the country, whether it's from Brexit uh, to whatever the topic is now. You know, there, there just is no way that the BBC can avoid being at the centre of that kind of attention because people pay for it out of their pocket. Therefore, they are subject to more scrutiny than, than Sky or ITV news is often. So that's, I suppose, that's the price you pay. Yeah, it certainly has been a lightning rod during uh, coverage of the Israel-Hamas war. I mean, I've written about it, so I'm not saying anything I haven't said before that I think the BBC's coverage, I think generally British coverage has been disgraceful and the BBC has been particularly bad. I've written that, so I don't mind saying it again on the podcast, but it has definitely, people have homed in on it and it does face inordinate pressure. Um, I also have happily repeat my, what I normally say about the BBC is that I think it's the best subscription I pay for out of everything. It's the best value I pay for out of everything. Although, as I said, the last couple of months I think it really has on the new side led itself down abysmally but we can dive we don't need to dive particularly into that but the the license fee thing is always a rod on its back isn't it because it does subject it to some kind of political pressure um I think the political pressure in the BBC has ramped up recently we've always had somewhat partisan figures leading chairing the bbc which is not the same as leading the editorial side but you know we've had chris patton under the you know under previous conservative administrations there have been uh 
Labour leaning figures under Labour governments. And that is what it is. And that's fine. But those figures have also been slightly above the fray and have risen to the occasion. We saw with the sort of Richard Sharp debacle and the attempts to get people like Charles Moore into the and Paul Dacre in, into the t- leadership of the BBC that there's more political interference. I, th- I, I think I'm comfortable in saying that. Yeah, and that's why it's essential that the BBC has a strong chair that will fight for the independence of the BBC. And even when they put in well-known Tory figures, we knew Richard Sharp obviously had that relationship with Boris Johnson. He was told to go in and sort out the BBC. But actually, once they get in there, a lot of these figures actually go native, is how it might be Mm. said, but they actually do end up becoming very strong defenders of the BBC and they understand more about how the organisation works. And they are the ones who are going to government saying, look, you know, we need more money for things like the World Service because you're putting these particular onerous tasks on the BBC now, so you need to give us the resources. So a strong chair from wherever their background is, they've usually ended up actually fighting for the BBC against government and making themselves as awkward as they ought to be. Yeah, I I think that is fair. And even if they've come from quote-unquote party politics, they tend to, uh, you've used the phrase go native, I would say they rise above the, the political fray, but that doesn't seem to have happened so much recently and that that is a shame but you know i'm you know i'm talking about figures like michael gray and grade in the blaze i've mentioned uh lord Patton. They, these are tough figures who yes came from party politics but also you know had a determination to do right for the bbc as well i think they would certainly like to think that and i think that's probably fair as well and they were also strong, sorry, I was going to say, they're also strong figures that are willing to call the management in and say, look, we're not happy. You are not delivering the current, the quality and prominence of current affairs programming. You know, it's sliding. And they were willing to really pull management to task. But I'm not sure over the past few years that management has had any serious questioning over the direction they're taking the BBC, over controversial moves like cutting local radio, uh, Newsnight. It's all been uh, put through on the nod effectively. And Ofcom has not been able to effectively uh, get into the BBC and regulate it. So I think the management under this structure has a real uh, chance. It it, it favours the management a lot more and the chair has been fairly quiet. I think that's a really important point, actually, because the the point of a chair of the BBC is not just to say, yes, everything's lovely, give the BBC more money. That's not, or, you know, let the licence fee go up. Because we should be clear, particularly for my listeners over in the States, the government doesn't just grant the BBC money. It's funded through the licence fee and some commercial activity. So it's not, you know, it's not the government writing a cheque. But the the control the government has is, of course, it can freeze the licence fee, it can agree to an increase in the licence fee, it can agree to a cut in the licence fee. That's where the politics comes in. It's not that it's, as I say, the government is not writing a cheque going, you have this for the next two years, four years, whatever. Um, As I say, the war has exposed, I think, the sort of partisan, I don't really like using that expression when we're talking about life and death situations, but... You know, it, it has shown to me how fraught the debate during a general election could be. Uh, and we've seen it before, and I think it will be exacerbated this time around. Um, and, and I don't quite know how the BBC is going to navigate that actually next year, because, as you say, it's cutting things like Newsnight. It's having to restrict a lot of what it's done. It's made a lot of cuts in new BBC News anyway. And that obviously puts strain on the way it can do things and what it can do. And I hear from, you know, 
a number of people the level of inexperience now in the BBC newsroom. I'm sure you're hearing the same thing. Yeah, and I think that's where a lot of the problems in the Israel-Gaza coverage has come from. Yep. There are assumptions that are embedded amongst a certain generation of the people that want to work in the journalism and the BBC who tend to come from a kind of more liberal, progressive background, certain assumptions that are not really challenged and end up seeping into the coverage or even in how you craft an 80-character headline on social media that just takes an assumption and presents it in the best way to get uh, engagement. So impartiality was Tim Davies' really big thing. The director general came in saying he was going to sort out impartiality. And I think at that point we were talking about Brexit and, and a kind yep. of metropolitan liberal point of view. It's turned out that the, the probably this is probably the worst, most divisive issue that could have happened to the BBC uh, in Israel uh, Gaza conflict because there are deeply uh, held views and you're asking your journalists to be journalists and put those to one side and act in, in an impartial and neutral manner and it's clear from uh, the coverage from places like BBC Arabic that there are people who find that difficult when they could be working for Al Jazeera and have uh, less constraints perhaps on, on, on what they're doing and BBC is terrified of offending an audience that they feel they need to keep on board in order to keep them paying the license fee. So this impartiality question has never been resolved satisfactorily under Tim Davy, and you see more and more examples of the BBC just willing to say look we're holding the line here. It's very difficult, but you know we have people like Gary Lineker who can say and do what they want pretty much, and they've they've given up trying to manage indeed some of those issues around social media. Uh, right, we're going to come to that as well. There's there's a lot to get through, but let's start with the most recent issues, which you mentioned Newsnight. Now, Newsnight for non-British listeners is a huge kind of flagship show. It's not the most watched show on the BBC by any means, but it's a sort of 10.30pm news magazine show. Used to include long-form interviews. It used to include quite interesting films on certain topics. Actually, I used to really enjoy um, the culture reviews that you should do on a Friday night, which were really wonderful. And it has, and it is, of course, it goes without saying, one of the most famous recent incidents was uh, the Prince Andrew interview which was done under the Newsnight banner uh, produced by Sam McAllister uh, presented by Emily Maitlis and it was you know obviously made global global news and Newsnight does have the capacity to do that but it's now being cut to what half an hour not really going to get that same level of reporting um, it's going to be basically a sort of debate late night debate show and I, my fear is it's just going to be a couple of people with different points of view shouting at each other which I don't think we need any more of on TV. Yeah, I think the decision was made to to make the savings and cut the programme as we know it without a lot of thought gone into what is going to emerge in its place. Mm. And I think a fear of a lot of people still within uh, the BBC and Newsnight is that this is just actually a staging post to probably saying, look, that hasn't worked, that's not cutting through, there's so much debate anyway on the other channels isn't it best just to drop the whole thing altogether? You know, they, they could have done things like make it four nights a week and run something different on Friday, could have saved money in a different space, but kept some more of it going. But um, I think that they, uh, there's almost some relish in the BBC that Newsnight's finally had its wings clipped because there was a lot of jealousy that it's it was well-staffed. It didn't make the same cuts that the rest of BBC News uh, programmes had to make, like the Today programme, and it had maintained its sort of fiefdom and independence. And it, therefore, when you have a 30% cut in licence fee income over 10 years and you really have to start culling, it was an obvious target and they hadn't 
made the savings i'm told that they could have done to to ease that uh, decision so it does feel like what is going to replace it will just be more of the same and it's yeah. the voices that shout loudest that cut through if they want to be calling it a news making debate program well you know, unless you have cabinet ministers willing to come on and do tough a half an hour tough interview, uh, but why would they do that at ten thirty yeah, at night? No, thanks. Um, I yes, I, I entirely agree with you. I think it's a real shame. I was reminded actually when reporting out uh, a newsletter I did on Newsnight that it's basically the only other bit of the BBC that has its own political editor. There's a BBC political editor, but there's also currently Nick Watt, uh, a Newsnight political editor. So that sort of goes to your point about it being a fiefdom but there was a bit of a backlash against this I slightly wondered if this was a bit of a flashback to do you remember there was a row over BBC Six Music uh, which they were going to remove altogether as a station it's an alternative uh, music digital radio station very popular loved by the people that listen to it by no means the biggest listened to uh, radio station in the BBC or the country by any stretch of the imagination but the people that listen to it absolutely and I include myself in that absolutely love it um, and it was going to be cut and there was a huge campaign to save six music and it eventually was saved it still exists it was a, cut a few years ago now and I wondered if this was a slight attempt to cause a public backlash so the bbc management could say look everyone loves newsnight people love newsnight we can't change it make sure the cuts don't affect things like this uh, uh again when i was reporting this out i'm not so sure i'm right about that now i think there's a bit the bbc news now is run by people that love rolling news that's their background not the kind of program making it's a slightly different thing and so I, I'm not sure, convinced I'm as right as that as I thought I was at the time. Yeah, I remember the Six Music uh, debate. I was reporting on that at the, the Times at the time. And I think that the problem for Six Music then actually was that it, it, it was good, but people didn't know about it. Right. So having this, this cancellation threat was brilliant. It suddenly was a Great beautiful market tool. And, and and its audience doubled and and it was away and, and it's never looked back since then i suppose with newsnight it, it is a known quantity it's it's a 40-year uh program and as you say there are people in the bbc who want to centralize news gathering and farm out reports and investigations and not have one silo working on its own feeding one program that's going out at night and not getting its stuff out elsewhere which is the argument that they've used they um so for that reason i think that and the, the backlash there was some sadness, but I think there was also some inevitability people felt as well that this was probably going to have to happen. Uh, but it's certainly an all or nothing. It wasn't a case of, look, we'll cut half of the, you know, we, we don't need a political editor, but we'll keep a science editor or something like that. It, it just seems to be, that's it. We have to save this money and there's no point in carrying on with a programme like this. In the format that it is, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, we've touched on the election. Let's dive more into that because I assume again the BBC will try and do set piece debates. Uh, I assume it will try and do long form interviews, um, and that this time the Prime Minister will not shirk doing that as Boris Johnson did. Uh, you know, I think they will try and do that. But it does have a huge problem now, and you've reported this out of who on earth is going to present its election coverage. So the uh, we've had. Long form interviews last election uh, were hosted by Andrew Neil, who, yes, we know his politics sort of. He's the chairman of the Spectator, um, but he's always sort of managed to keep himself in line on the BBC. 
and has always been the toughest of interviewers in these election, you know, leaders interviews, uh, interviewing the leaders of the different parties. We've had election debates. Forgive me, I don't actually remember who hosted the election debates back in 2010, but, you know, it was a tough, uh, tough situation for the, you know, it was a tough uh, sort of throwing to the lion's den the leaders there. They'd never done it before. It was a bit of a farce last time around. 2010, it was a real thing. Um, those people have left the BBC. And of course, and you, this is what you've been reporting on, the person who presents election night, Hugh Edwards, will not be back at the BBC. We've, you know, all the controversies and I don't like to use the word scandal, but you know what I'm saying. The issues around him and his personal life, which have effectively led to him leaving the BBC. It's not official yet. There's no been no severance yet, but he, I think it's fair to say he's not coming back to the BBC, Hugh Edwards, is he? Um, and that's what your story indicated not that long ago. I do, how does the BBC sort of pick its starting 11 for election coverage? Where are we going? You've obviously got BBC political editor Chris Mason. Uh, we've mentioned it, what, on Newsnight, but that's a slightly different role. You've got Laura Kingsberg and her Sunday show, former political editor as well. You've got the Nick Robinson and the Today team. Who is going to lead this stuff? Yeah, it's it's a real dilemma for them. Um, as you say, Hugh Edwards hasn't officially left the BBC yet, but nobody believes that he can suddenly come back and present the election coverage, especially if it's an early election, if it was in spring. But the BBC can't formally approach anybody to take his place until there is a that issue is, is resolved. So it's a bit of an HR problem. Clearly, they've got good candidates. People like Laura Kunzberg could anchor the show with uh, Fiona Bruce or Nick Robinson, although I think he was expected to do the radio, lead the radio coverage. Plus, it could well be a 24-hour election. It's not just going to be 10 o'clock till 4 or 5 in the morning. No, it's going to be a big going to be hugely important, and um, it's going to, it could be rolling on the next day. Who The person who actually calls the election might be the one at 9 in the morning or 10 in the morning eventually on BBC. So it's a real problem for them. And the interviews, who has the stature to do those kind of extended interviews? And um, would the Prime Minister now go on them with Boris Johnson having already set the tone for not appearing with Andrew Neil? Are those interviews now by the by? And you've got the new entrance in the uh, the political uh, TV sphere for the first time at a general election, GB News and Talk TV. And they'll certainly want their own debates. They all expect to host the hustings. They might partner with another broadcaster to do it if there's possibility of that. Well, Piers Morgan's not going to stay quiet, is he? No. And um, they will push the boundaries of what is acceptable in terms of balance and partiality uh, in order to drive the debate the way that they want to drive it. So they'll they'll be looking for, I mean, because GB News has got Boris uh, Johnson uh, signed up for 2024. He's going to present a programme for GB News and he's going to be what they call a, a roving kind of commentator during not just the UK election, but the US presidential election, which is another thing that's going to drain resources for all uh, broadcasters. You can't see my face. <laughs> uh, <laughs> listeners can't see my face, but when... Adam said, roving reporter, US election, Boris Johnson, my face fell. Uh, I sort of hid under the desk. But yes, you're, you're, uh, you're absolutely right that these uh, upstart, for want of a better phrase, outlets are in this double, ele what looks like it's going to be a double election year, are going to try and push the boundaries. Um, obviously, there's still Nigel Farage, isn't there, on GB News as well. 
who was obviously very team Trump last time around. We're going to see all of that playing out on these upstarts. And I think there is a risk that the BBC just looks boring and people are going to turn it off. Yeah, and the, the cuts to news gathering means are we going to get the same kind of focus of getting into the regional issues, the local issues that people expect to see on the BBC? Newsnight was very effective in, in going into, you know, breaking it down into a particular street and talking to people there. Are we not going to get that kind of coverage? Is it going to be very bland and just press conferences and, you know, photo opportunities? Um, how is the BBC going to cover that? Um, and they will have people on the on the right, on, on the spectrum, trying to pull the debate a particular direction. Um, plus, suppose Nigel Farage, if he's a candidate, he won't be allowed uh, yes. the rain on free rain on GB News. And, and GB News obviously having so many conservative uh, MPs, if they're not standing, they can probably appear on GB News. But otherwise, they have to be careful about yes. uh, of rules, which will be tighter during an election campaign. Yes, we could have a whole other show on how Ofcom is managing some of these channels, but we'll do that perhaps another time. I'll have to drag you on in the new year, but. You also mentioned at the top of the show local radio and local news, which people really care about on the BBC. It's one of the things that people, I think, really associate with BBC. It's hard for me to say it in the same way living in London, which I think distorts my view of it. But I know for a fact living you know, outside London, the BBC is hugely, hugely important for its local coverage. And you mentioned at the top of the show, and you're absolutely right, that the uh, the that it's been vastly reduced what it can do, its capacity. There's some, you know, amalgamations. There's some merging of what the output. It's becoming harder and harder to have these for BBC local radio and local news in general. Yes, and that might come up in the election as being a, a problem because people in one locality do not, not see any reason why they should be considered the same as people who live in a town next door. They have very different issues, uh, probably competing for funds and resources. And, and so that no other commercial radio stations are going to be able to fill that gap. They've already merged all their local stations into national brands. Yes. So that's where the BBC really did have this uh, opportunity. And But um, obviously they've decided that the audience is declining, the money needs to shift to online journalism, but in a local, in a national election, those local stations would normally expect to pick up audiences and really drill down into the issues that matter to their uh, listeners. And that's what the BBC licence fee is for, because no one else can. Yeah, I mean, just uh, in November, there were, it was going to share the BBC decided to share um, programming across 39 local stations. Some presenters lost their jobs or will lose their jobs. These are the plans that are putting forward. That does. And there's already been 45 presenting jobs that have gone at BBC local stations in England. It's it's becoming a problem. And of course, one of the things people remember from BBC local radio was those Liz Truss interviews where the BBC, I, I wrote a newsletter saying why was everyone surprised that the BBC local radio presenters were so incisive. Now, I would suggest that a few of them, if you listen to the whole lot, which was available on BBC Sounds as a sort of compilation, um, some of them were grandstanding a little bit, knew they had their national moment. But equally, they showed the power of BBC local radio. And that's just getting less and less and less. 
It is. I suppose to be fair to the BBC, they will say that the morning programmes where those Liz Truss interviews took place, those shows are still intact. Absolutely. And it's the afternoon and the evenings where there's less listening, where they decided to amalgamate a bit more. So maybe they'd say they would preserve those morning shows. But yeah, it certainly showed underestimate local radio at your peril. Um, it's not an easy uh, ride in any shape or form. And listeners will expect their views to be represented to leading politicians uh, and get and speak to them and question them and quiz them during an election. Yeah, and obviously, again, this is something we believe the regulator Ofcom is keeping their eye on. Where so just to sum up, where do we think this is all going in twenty twenty four? We're obviously going to have a license fee settlement that will have to be done in twenty twenty four, I believe. We've had rows as well. We should touch on this. Actually, it's not just about news, and it's not just even about media output i think there's probably a reason why you cover the arts and media and the bbc sums that up because it's not just about um the channels and the website the bbc has some of the best orchestras in the uk some of the best choirs in the uk um we haven't even touched on the drama and the documentaries and the other sport content you know bbc doesn't really do sport anymore it's lost most of its sports rights but you know there is the FA Cup, there is um, the quote-unquote crown jewels that the BBC has to be involved in presenting. And people, I think, people don't want the BBC to be kneecapped. You know, I've expressed my frustrations at the news recently, but there's still loads of things I love from the BBC, whether it's, you know, the sports coverage on the radio on a Saturday afternoon, whether it's, uh, as I say, some of the documentaries or the dramas etc 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 you know people don't want the bbc kneecapped and there will be a point i think where it can there'll be a political backlash and you know there was a we saw there was a choir wasn't there a bbc choir that was going to be cut and there was an outcry and the the choir was saved now you and i may not be huge fans of choral music but that really matters to people in that world and the bbc has the capacity to do those things uh people have been loving at the time we're recording this the 60th anniversary doctor who episodes which have been a huge hit from what I can tell. I'm no Whovian, but I can tell from people that it's been successful. So there's a bigger picture with the BBC as well, isn't there, that we have to take in. You and I, as news junkies, might drill into the news element of it, but there, there is a bigger picture. Yes, and the more they have to salami slice and cut away at this and cut away at that, you lose the consent of people who are paying the licence fee, who sadly the most engaged people are the older audience they tend to be those 40 and above and for older people particularly it's a it's a something that's on permanently often and even the news channel is something that they would have on in the background almost as a default and if you cut those people off you're left trying to appeal to an audience of younger people that show very little interest in watching what you're doing and paying for the license fee therefore you change your programs to the point where you uh, you know, alienate your core audience and try and chase a younger audience that just doesn't want it. So that's the real dilemma for the BBC. But there have opportunities like the commercial wing of the BBC, uh, Doctor Who, I mean, you mentioned there, is a great example where they partnered with Disney now for mm. the, these new series. And that has allowed the budget for the programme to triple. So it doesn't look as uh, shonky as it used to do. It's got a bit more special effects power now. Uh, can't do anything about the scripts, but, you know, you at least it's going to look really you good. You say that to Russell T Davis's <laughs> face, Adam. You tell <laughs> that to his face. <laughs> yes. Yes, I wouldn't dare, of course. He's a lovely man, Russell T. Davis, but I'm not sure about the uh, the scripts being as strong as they uh, they were in his glory days as Doctor Who when he reinvented it. 
But I think that that shows you at least that there's a future for the BBC in partnerships, but it can't make you current affairs necessarily and some of those other areas where you really need to keep a, a big enough base of talent within the organisation of journalists and, and uh, current affairs to be able to do the kind of things that people expect the BBC to do. Mm. I, I went to the podcast show London over the summer and I went to a session that involved uh, the BBC, BBC Sounds, which is the sort of audio podcast wing, and Spotify. Again, there was a there was a partnership there, you know, helping. It was I think it was basically helping get adverts into BBC Sounds, but obviously it's not commercial adverts. It would be adverts for other BBC shows, essentially. But again, a partnership with a big tech slash media company and the BBC. And I, I think you're right that that's how it's going to have to look forward. Uh, for me, the thing is, this all becomes a bit of a vicious cycle, right? Uh, and you've rather summed it up rather well that the BBC does less and less of what people like. So people complain, people don't want to pay the licence fee, the government can freeze or cut the licence fee, then the BBC can't do more of what people like, and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I do think we have to be careful of that. Yes, and I suppose for the BBC, although no one would ever say it, the sort of sunlit uplands would be that there's a change of government, all of a sudden the pressure's off, the economy improves a little bit, there'll be less focus on the licence fee, it won't matter if it goes up £1 a month, people won't notice it that much. So there's a chance that they get a bit of uh, space and time under a different government that allows them to sort of regroup and, and focus on the things that they really ought to be doing. But they're still going to have to make a lot of these savings. And how deep will the acts go? Are they going to look at daytime TV? Should they be spending money making programmes that are kind of humdrum programmes when you could be watching ITV? Does EastEnders still justify? It's a very large whoa, budget. Whoa, yes, whoa. I think, uh, you know, 50, 60 million pounds a year making EastEnders if the audience is, is, is slipping for its uh, overnight viewing, certainly. How can they justify that anymore? Does it? How this deep is highly is... controversial. Stuff yeah. Well, this is the kind of thing that, uh, you know, they did say there'd be painful decisions to be made if they license feed can't keep pace with inflation. And that is the problem. I think we should emphasise, actually, just before we wrap up the show, because we've mentioned the licence fee a lot. And for those outside the UK, they may not realise this, but paying the licence fee is a legal requirement. You can go to prison for not paying the licence fee. If you're found watching TV and uh, live television, and so I'm not talking about you have a Netflix subscription and all you watch is Netflix. If you watch live television, whether it's the BBC or not, you have to pay the licence fee. And you can it's a criminal offense still isn't it there's been threats to not to decriminalize it but it ha has been I, I believe it still is a criminal offense i think the, the yeah the, the imprisonment threat comes in i think if you don't pay the fine for not paying the license fee, right. so they can say look it's not you don't go to prison for not paying the license fees that's a separate matter if you don't pay a fine but yes that has and if you and there is moves to decriminalize non-payment of, of the of, of which the again fee. the bbc doesn't like because yeah. it thinks it would encourage people not to pay it yeah, and that is the government's big stick. A Conservative government has often said we want to look into that. They did reject it, but clearly that effectively makes the licence fee voluntary. If there's no sanction against not paying it anymore, then a lot of people will make that decision to cut the cord and stop paying it. So that's one of the things that the government can hold over the BBC when they do this big review, which is going to supposedly happen of the licence fee. I doubt it will produce anything significant before an election, but they are looking at all different measures of... Uh, reform of the license fee, subscription, advertising for the BBC, converting to a, a household tax like a council tax bill. So 
there's lots of different ideas for reforming the license fee. I think that ultimately it's going to end up a lot like it is now, but maybe um, an additional element could be found for the mm. license fee with some people paying more. I think the BBC, I think 2024 is going to be a really big year for the BBC. Two elections. We don't know what's going to happen in the two major wars happening in the world. You know, we'd like to think they will settle, but there's no sign of that at the moment. It's huge, huge stuff on the new side. Um, we're heading into Christmas, as you and I record this, which the BBC always get loads of scrutiny for its Christmas programming and people like that. There's a lot to look at that will be drilled in on BBC. I think it's going to be really, really interesting. So I'm really grateful that you took the time to chat at least some through some of these. There's so much more we could talk about, and I'm sure I'll have you back in the new year to talk about it. Adam, thank you so much. Just remind people where they can keep up with you and your work. Yes, so I'm at the iPaper, which is also the inews.co.uk website, and I'm on Twitter at Adam Sherwin 10. I'm at Charlotte A. Henry across social media. Uh, obviously, head over to theedition.net or newsletters.theedition.net if you want to sign up to the newsletter. I will obviously love you, particularly if you sign up for a paid subscription. Um, and we will see you next week. Mm -hmm.